Waypoint does a lot of series. We find them helpful to have a single topic, and then we find some stuff that are related. We put them together. That way, if somebody misses and they come back, they'll still have the general idea, and the weeks aren't closely associated with each other. I mean, they're not linked hard. Um, and so we rarely tie them together because of that. Uh, this series, we've done something rare. The last two weeks, this last week and this week, are really tied hard together. And so I would encourage you, if you, um, you want to make sense of all of this, I will go back and listen to next week. But let me just bring you up to speed, because I think you have to have that in the back of your mind as we continue to extend what we're going to talk about here today. Last week, we talked about a scandalous story, and it turns out that the biggest scandal of the story was that Jesus claimed that he could give life. Life at the core of who you are, and that life would never need to be renewed. It, um, it was referred to as living water. And this was something that would have been hard for them to grasp and reason with. In fact, they challenged Jesus on this. And there was only one person. There was only one person who was in a really hopeless position that ended up being able to receive that. That she received that because she didn't have any other choice and she knew it. And we said, that's the value of hopelessness, is sometimes you'll look on the outside. You realize you can't solve your own problems. And you'll look to somebody else who can rescue you and save you. And that's hard in our culture because that's not the way we think. We think, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to make this right. Yeah, I've done some stuff that's wrong, but I'm just going to do more good. I'll do more good and I'll outweigh it. I'm, gonna, I'm better than that guy. Look at that guy. And we justify what we've done and how we've done it. And that's what causes us to feel that we don't really need to be hopeless. We can do this on our own. And so this one person received this thing at the core of who she was, a hope that would never die, never go away. She was rescued from all of her junk. Now this morning, we're going to continue. We're going to continue talking a little bit about hopeless, hopelessness, but we're going to come at it from a different angle. And the reason we're going to do this, the reason we have done these last two days, is because I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. I want to get to a place where I ask you to evaluate where you are with Jesus. Uh, Waypoint, the, the mission is in our name. A waypoint is a place on a journey where you can adjust and change your course. And our mission is to adjust and change your course toward Christ. And we talk about Jesus all the time here. And on the weekends, we give you opportunities to adjust your course. We think everybody's on a journey, and so we want to give space to that. But sometimes it makes sense just to stop and ask, have you, have you made an ultimate decision with Jesus? Where do you stand with him? Have you placed your trust in who he is and what he came for? And sometimes the reason we haven't done that is because we haven't been hopeless enough. So that's why, that's why I want to talk about this just a little bit more today. And we're going to use a parable that Jesus, that Jesus told to understand this idea of hopelessness just a little bit more. A, a parable is a story whose facts aren't true. He just makes it up. And Jesus will make up stuff from the culture. So it's really culturally contextual. You have to understand what's kind of going on. And the people listening do. But the truth 
in that parable is the gem. The problem when we read parables, unfortunately, is we look at the parable and we're like, that is a cute little story with a nifty little truth in it. That's neat. And what we don't understand is that most of the time when Jesus told a parable, um, what was happening is he was shocking people. In times, what he said was offensive to them. He was trying to evoke emotional responses in people where they would walk away going, what did he just say? Why did he just say that? It would stick in their minds and they would roll that over and over and over. And all of a sudden, the truth of that story would land. And then somebody would have to make a decision about that truth that they now understood. Well, that's, that's where we're going this morning because Jesus tells a doozy tells a doozy as a story, and to understand why he does it in the first place, there's some stuff that's set up, why he even launches into the parable that we'll look at. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 14. If you have um, your Bible on a phone, that's really easy to look up, and if you don't have that yet, I'd recommend that you get the U version. You can get online and download that. Um, it's, it's got uh, Apple and Android kind of downloads. And it has all kinds of versions, got study stuff on there, it has reading guides, it'll send you a verse of the day, there's all kinds of helpful stuff. If you don't have that yet, I'd recommend that you get that. But we're going we're gonna to pick up a story where Jesus is having a banquet, a meal with a whole group of Pharisees, which seems odd. Because when you see Jesus interacting with Pharisees in the scriptures, most often what's happening is they're banging heads. And it feels like they're the enemy. And I think sometimes what happens is we've, there's kind of a misunderstanding about what Jesus was doing. He didn't just come to hang out with the lowest of the low. He did that. It was unheard of for somebody in his position to do that. But Jesus put himself in front of everybody. He wanted his message to be heard by everyone. And he was trying to give them a chance to respond to it. So he goes to a meal with a whole group of Pharisees, and we find this happening in Luke chapter 14, verse 1, and something odd happens. It becomes a tense situation. Verse 1, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. So these are important leaders. He's got their ear. If he can convince them he's Messiah, some good stuff could happen. So he's in front of a good crowd. And it says, he was being carefully watched. Have you ever been at a tense meal? I think maybe the easiest meal that you could maybe put your finger on for a tense meal is the first date. You know how that is, right? You know you're being watched because you're watching them. And then in the middle of that, you realize, I ordered spaghetti. What was I thinking, right? I'm going to be slurping this up and they're going to stare at me. I should have ordered the calzone. And you just beat yourself up, right? The whole thing, it's just, it's difficult. I don't know, may, maybe the awkward, the awkward meal for you is Thanksgiving dinner. Because family members have been like having it out with each other, and you get to be there in the middle of it, and it just feels like, oh, what are we going to do? When I think awkward, like tense kind of meal, this is what I think of. I think of being invited to my wife's work Christmas party. That's what I think of. And here's the reason why. Um... I, I like my work Christmas party. I hang out with those people. I see them. All. I even see the spouse. We, we do stuff to hang out with each other all year long. But at this party, 
I'm hanging out with people that I'll see once a year. And this is what happens. This is what happens. I'm sitting there with my protection, my wife, and she gets up and she goes, I'm going to go talk over there. And then all the other people who work there do the same thing. And you're left at a table with a bunch of people who don't know each other, who don't work together, and, and the light goes off in my head. I've got to carry this conversation, right? I'm not going to be great at this. And so you throw something out like, so what does everybody do? And some guy mumbles back, yes. And you're like, wait, that was an open-ended question. How did you do that? And it gets so awkward, and I, I can't stand it, right? That's what I think of. But for Jesus, his tense was different. His tense was, I'm watching you to make any slip-up you make and any kind of spiritual accusation we can bring against you, we're going to do. And Jesus knew it, and he didn't want to be there just to have a banquet. He wanted to talk. He wanted to, have, he wanted to have a serious conversation about something that matters. So Jesus decides to provoke the conversation. And he actually heals somebody. It's the Sabbath, and he heals them. They had rules that said you couldn't do that. And he healed the person, and he looked at this group, and he said, anybody got a problem with that? And they all went like this. Hmm. Not a word. Not a word. They wouldn't touch it. So Jesus is looking for something else. He, he wants to have a conversation about something that matters. And he notices they're doing something in the room. He, it, it would have been all about a social uh, belief that they all had. The whole culture practiced this. Jesus sees this going on. They're trying to angle themselves to sit in good places, to sit next to important people. And he knows why they're doing it, and he decides to challenge it. And the thing that he's going to challenge, the best way to describe it, and then I'll, I'll describe it, is social reciprocity. You're like, what is social reciprocity? Social reciprocity is this simple. If I do something good for you, I expect you to do that same good thing back. In fact, I'll keep track. And because I've done something good for you, I will expect it to be repaid in a certain amount of time. And if you don't, I can hold it against you. I can hold it against you and I can reject you if you don't. In fact, whole communities would reject people if they didn't reciprocate. If the community did something for somebody and that person didn't join in the community the next time it happened, a whole group of people would say, you're, you're out, you're ostracized to us, we're done with you. So this is, this is kind of going on. Jesus is watching this kind of match where these people are trying to put themselves in important positions because if I put you, myself in an important position, then the next time I have a meal, this person of importance will feel obligated to sit next to me and I'll look really good. So there's all this kind of stuff going on. And so Jesus sees it and he decides to tackle it. By the way, I've, I've wondered if we kind of do that in our culture. I'm, I'm not convinced we do. I thought the, the closest thing that we've gotten to is maybe graduation parties. Right? If I come to your graduation party, you better come to my graduation party. But even that, I, d I don't think that happens. Because people know we're busy. And so if, you, if you're busy and you miss it, it's not like you end up on a blackballed list where like, <laughs> they weren't here. 
going to get them later, right? They're going to pay for that. And I don't think we do it with weddings. You have a wedding, it's, it's got a certain venue, it's a certain number of people, you have a certain budget, and you look at somebody and say, who do you want to invite? And they invite whoever, and that's just the way it is. But there isn't a list that we keep track of. But these guys, it wasn't just big events. It was even small things, small, kind, good things that you did. People kept track of. So Jesus notes all this, and he decides to poke the bear. He's trying to provoke a conversation about something that matters other than all of this stuff that he's watching happen at this meal. So he says this in verse 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And immediately, the group listening to him would have said, why? Why in the world would we do that? And they would have had two things instantly on their mind. Why would we invite people that we know can't pay us back? That's the reason we do it. I invite you. You invite me. I'm going to still get something out of this. But if I invite those people, I'm going to get nothing. And the other reason they would have wondered why in the world would we do this is because three of the people on that list were where um, the culture had a list of people, a grouping, that they called sinners. These were people that they identified that God didn't like. And so they would be put in this category of sinners. And if God didn't like them, I didn't have to like them. I could even treat them terribly because God didn't like them. And three on the list were in that grouping. And they would have thought to themselves, why would I associate with people that God doesn't like? That doesn't seem to be a very smart thing for me to do. I'm not going to get paid back, and I wouldn't hang out with them in the first place. Why are, why are you bringing this up? And Jesus gives the why immediately. Verse 14. And you will be blessed. You do this, and you'll be blessed. Now, this would have caused some head scratching, Right? They'd have wondered, what in the world are you talking about? How does this result in us being blessed? Because it seems like we're hanging out with the wrong group and they're not going to pay us back. Um, but this has finally provoked something. Because somebody in the group, we don't know who, we just know somebody in that group decides to throw something back to Jesus that gives him something worth talking about. Happens in verse 15. He heard Jesus talking about all of this and he says back to him, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. You, Jesus, say, blessed are you if you invite these people to a banquet. I say no. I say you're blessed when you end up in heaven with God at his feast. That's when you're blessed. And you know why he was saying that? Because he believed he was righteous enough to have earned that spot in heaven. He, he, God was obligated to take him. He's that good. He's been that righteous. He, he's got his stuff together. And so he says, listen, wrong measurement for blessing. Now what, what he just did was he opened up a conversation that Jesus can now have about what it looks like to be invited to heaven, invited into God's kingdom. 
and about the kinds of people who will choose not to do that and the kinds of people who will choose to do that. And God, or and Jesus takes the, he, he's like, ah, you gave it to me. It's time to go. Let's do this. And so he tells a parable. Now remember, the parable is going to sound very much like a cultural story. It's going to be about stuff that they would understand. But this has a deeper spiritual meaning. This is going to be about the kingdom of heaven and being invited and who says no and who doesn't. So this is important. It starts in verse 16. Jesus says this. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Which is fantastic. He, um, somebody's decided to throw a banquet just like the one they're in. But this is a great banquet. And he's invited all kinds of people. Remember, spiritual kind of context. This is about God inviting all. I'm inviting as many people as possible to my kingdom. All right? Verse 17. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Now just in case you read those two verses together and think to yourself, this is a last minute throwdown. Um, you, what's happening is you're not quite understanding how this would have worked in their culture. Um, verse 16 is about a save the date sort of thing that would have happened. It was an intense save the date. More important than, so basically you would contact everybody in your community and you say, I'm planning a great banquet on this date. Is it clear? Is it clear? And they would report back to you. It's clear, it's clear, it's clear, it's clear. No, I've got a wedding on that day. They would change it and reset the date. They would do, this is like, this is like one of those chain emails where you're trying to set up a meeting with 20 people in one place that just keeps going for a while. And eventually you get to the place where you're like, ah, forget it. Let's just take 17 people and be done with it. Not these guys. Everybody. They would wait to a place where everybody could be there. There were no distractions. And they would say, okay, the date is set. This is when everybody can show. And in verse 17, it was when the date finally arrived. The preparations had been made. And the servants would go back out and they would say, hey, the time is for the banquet that you said you were available for, that you said you would come to. Now is the time to come. All of that's normal. All of that would have happened in the culture. But what happens next becomes shocking. Would have been difficult for the listeners to understand how this could possibly happen. Would have been offensive. It says this in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. In a culture where if I do something good for you, you do it in return, this is unheard of. If I had come to your banquet and now I'm inviting you to a great banquet, you're obligated to come. But we don't know that that's the case. We don't know that he's gone to anybody else's banquet. But you said you would go and you're not. This would have been unheard of for these people. The only thing that makes it worse, and it is worse, is that the reasons they start giving are all bogus. They're all bogus, and everybody knows it. Here's the excuses. It starts in verse 18. I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Verse 19. I had just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. 
please excuse me. Verse 20, I just got married, so I can't come. Right? Can't show up. Now here, what, what is going on? Well, um, most of these people would have looked at this and said, that is the most repugnant thing that we have ever heard. Because they understood how these transactions took place. In ancient culture, when you went to buy a field, you would crawl over every square foot of that ground. You would know what was usable, what was not usable. You would do that to negotiate the price. You wanted to know that thing inside and out. Do you remember there was another parable in the scriptures uh, that was told that Jesus said somebody was looking on a piece of property and found a pearl, went and sold everything so they could buy that property. How big is a pearl? And yet they found it doing their examination of the land before they would buy it. That's how closely they looked at this stuff. So when somebody says, I just bought a field and I need to go check it out, bogus. You're lying. You crawled all over this thing. That's a huge excuse. The five oxen, the five yoke of oxen. It was very common in this culture. You would go and watch those auction work. You would then ask if you could step behind them, and you would actually work them on the land yourself. In many cases, you would even take them to your property, and you would use them for a little while because you wanted to know everything about that purchase before you, made the, before you gave out any money. To say, I just bought five oxen, and I need to try them out, would have been ridiculous. Everybody knew it. They're like, this is the most ridiculous thing we've ever heard. And then the last one. This, it would have actually been particularly offensive for a couple reasons. One, I just got married and I can't come and join you would have had a connotation that, hey, I've got to go consummate my marriage sort of thing, which you would never have even talked about in this culture. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have even talked about your bride in any way. You don't bring that kind of stuff up. But even more offensive is you said, I'll be there. Here's the date, I know the date, I'll be there. And you scheduled something important to you on that day that conflicted instead. Unheard of. Unheard of. And people would have been in shock. But, but Jesus called them excuses. I love that he did that. Because the reality is, um, although he was telling a story that was embedded in the culture... These excuses that he's putting his finger on are actually bigger things that have been around for a really long time. They've been around for thousands of years, and they're still active in our world today. These are excuses that people use, and they point at these, and they're like, this, this is what I've given my time to. This is what I've given my energy to. So the field represents wealth and status, where people have decided, in, the, in that culture, if you had more property, you had more standing you had more ability to make money. And so it just, you would try to collect as much as you could. And in our culture, we have people doing the same thing. They're trying to get as much as they can. And based on that, it improves their status and how they look and how they feel about themselves. And so it becomes this thing that people chase. The oxen represent the careers or the identities that we have. If you ever ask somebody, who are you? And they answer with their occupation. It's because for so many of us, we put our value of who we are in the work that we do. And so you have this person going, I'm a farmer, and I've got to go excuse myself to go do this. My identity of who I am and what I do is more important 
And then the last one is about relationships. We allow relationships to get in the way. All of these things are value calls. Here's what I value in life because I think they get me what I want. They get me where I want. And if these things, if I just give myself to these things, I'll be really good at the end of the day. Into that, to those excuses, Jesus says this. Verse 21. This is how the master responds who's throwing their great banquet when people start turning him down, when everybody starts turning him down. Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The four exact categories that Jesus had brought up earlier, so you know these are linked. And Jesus is saying, listen, go out and invite the people who can't pay me back. They're going to know they can't pay me back. The, the light's going to go off in their head. He must know I can't pay him back, but he's still offering this to me anyway. I think I'm going to go for it. And this was opposed to the Pharisees in the room who were just convinced they had earned it. And they had earned it chasing wealth. Their careers as Pharisees. Relationships. They were positioning themselves in the room to be next to the right people so that they could be repaid. The Pharisees had placed their value, their hope in what they could accomplish that would obligate God to them. And God was looking for the invite to go to those who would recognize, I can't possibly pay you back, but I'll show up. And you know what Jesus was implying to these Pharisees? You've done all of this work to gather your wealth, your status. You've done, you've built your career as a Pharisee. You have all of these relationships that are important to you. And you know what the problem is, guys? The invitation to my kingdom is going to come to your door. By the way, it's sitting right here at the table right now with you. And you're going to miss it. Because you've misplaced your value somewhere else. You don't have a hope in the world. Or you, you have placed all of your hope in the world. You have, you have no sense of hopelessness at all. Because you can do it all. You can build your wealth. You can build your status. You can do all of this. And the people that will accept my invite are the ones who realize spiritually, I'm, I'm crippled. I'm blind. I'm spiritually poor. I cannot pay back God for what he's going to do. But I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to accept his invite. See, the, the problem with the things that become distracting in our lives is they mislead us. They, they mislead us from the thing that matters the most, and that is Jesus coming to you and saying, listen, I know you need hope, but you might not sign up to get the source of hope for me if you're just so distracted by other things. If you've misplaced your hope somewhere else, you might miss what I'm doing. And can I tell you, it, it appears to me that that happens in people's lives all the time. One of the places that I see people misplacing their hope 
is they've concluded, we talked about this last week, how people say, you know what? I'm not that guilty. I can justify all the stuff that I've done wrong. I can ignore it. I can just push it off. I can convince myself that all I have to do is do more good. I'll just do more good. I'll outweigh the bad stuff and I'll fix it myself. I got this. We just compare ourselves. I'm like that guy and I'm better. So I must be okay. And here's the problem. The invitation is going to come to your door. God's going to say, I want to offer you freedom. I want to offer you a hope that could enter into your heart and carry you through life. And you'll miss it. Because you're convinced that you can fix this on your own. And in our culture where self-reliance and independence is such a big thing, this is happening to lots of people. One of the other places where we misplace our hope is all these things that become a distraction in our life. Jesus was sitting with a bunch of Pharisees who were so distracted because they were trying to accumulate wealth and career and relationships because that's where they thought the value was. And we do the same thing. We accumulate those things to try and fill up a void for meaning in our lives. And it starts to feel like it doesn't matter how much I have, I need more. And you wonder what the answer is. And so you go get more and you still feel empty. And Jesus comes to you and says, I want to invite you to receive a hope that could sit at the center of who you are that would change your life forever. And we're so distracted by this stuff that we don't feel the need, we don't feel hopeless enough to take that offer and we keep chasing this stuff that doesn't fill up our lives. Another place I've watched people misplace hope, it's it's a smaller grouping of people, but you would think with a conversation in our culture that it's a whole lot more, but it's under 5%. But just in case you're here, I just want to talk to you for just a second. There's a group of people who have just concluded that God doesn't exist. It's the easiest way for them to deal with this stuff. There's no need for me to have a hope in God. He's not real. I'm going to place my hope in logic, which I, I think that's okay for you to start there because God made logic, and if you would use it, you would rub up against some stuff that would make you scratch your head. Like, just, just go out and study What's the likelihood of the human DNA even being possible? Look at the percentage for that. What about microbiology? Look at the percentages for this kind of stuff happening by chance. And then ask this question. If it's 1 in 600 billion, and I think that's a small number for the likelihood that our DNA could evolve through chance, then can you give the same possibility that God might exist? That same slim possibility that you are willing to give for the other. And if that's the case, what are you going to do about that? Because there's a chance that that's real. And maybe you're going to have to start looking at some things differently. But if you put your hope in your intelligence, if you put your hope in other things, you will never make yourself available for the hope that Jesus has to offer See, he knows that we've messed up. 
He knows that we'd like to try to fix it ourselves. He knows that we have distractions for what we value that all get in the way. And what he quietly does is he comes to your heart and he makes a simple invitation. I could free you from all of that. I could give you a hope that would change your life. And I just want to say this real quick. What I'm not suggesting is that when you decide to follow Jesus and you get a hope at the core of who you are, that you will never experience a hopeless moment again. That's not been my story. That's not been the story of many others. You're still going to have people that you love who pass. You're still going to face disease. You're going to still face very difficult struggles. But the difference is, in the midst of all of that, there is a hope that you find that other people don't to keep taking one step after the other that comes from being connected to a God who loves you, who understood where you were at. And because you had a sense of hopelessness, you attached yourself to him. And when you feel like you can't go on, you, you get a strong arm that helps carry you. It's the difference. And so I want to ask you just a simple question this morning. Where do you stand with Jesus? Have you made a choice to make him the hope of your life? Have you looked at the stuff that you've done that you've piled up and you're like, I'm trying to do good, but I don't think I can ever get over this, and just said, I'm going to take your forgiveness instead. I'm going to accept that I can't pay you back, and I'm going to take your invite right now. Have you ever done that? In fact, as you think about it, would everybody be willing to just um, close your eyes and put your heads down for a little bit? I don't want people looking around checking out the room. I just want to talk to you for a minute. If you're, um, if you're one of those people this morning that the light went off, that you realize, man, I've, I've done some stuff that I know is wrong, and I have been trying to do as much good to overcome that as possible, and it's exhausting. And I finally realized that unless I tap into Jesus, unless I accept his forgiveness, unless I take his hope, this is going to kill me. And I need to choose him instead. Or maybe this morning you're here and you've realized, I have been chasing all the wrong stuff. I've been getting my value in the wrong places and it has me so distorted. I keep getting more, more of the things that I think I need and want and I still feel empty and if that's you the answer is you need to step towards Jesus knowing that you can't pay him back that he holds value for you in who he is and how he looks at you and you're not going to get it any other way maybe people here this morning who wrestle with wondering God even exists and you've been relying on you and you kind of know that maybe this morning it's just time to say this to God I, I'm that cripple 
I'm that blind person. I'm that lame. I know it. I can't pay you back, but I want what you have. I want, I want to be rescued by you. So I want you to come into my life. I want you to be a part of my journey from this point forward. If, if you could uh, keep your eyes closed, if you could just move the lights up a little bit. If that was you this morning, if you just said that to God, hey, I, I need to start this relationship with you. I've been doing this on my own this whole time and I've realized I need to place my hope with you instead. If you would look up and just, just catch my eyes, just look me in the eye and acknowledge that you are starting that journey with Jesus today. When I see you, I'll say, hey, I got it. And you can put your head back down. Yeah. Yeah. heads are still down I think it's possible that there are people here who made a decision to follow Jesus a long time ago and instead of being faithful to that the distractions that we talked about today started to get hold of your heart and God became secondary to you and somewhere in the mix the success career, the wealth, relationships, those took over. And they have shaped your world right now. And you realize, I, I need to, I need to get back on track. I need to make the focus, this Jesus who gives me hope. If that's you right now, we just tell God, hey, I'm sorry. I've been going in my own direction. And I don't want that anymore. He's going to invite you back into his arms. He loves you. If you've done that this morning, if that's you that I was just talking to, would you just look up? Would you look up and catch my eyes? I got you. Yep. As I, as I catch your eyes, got it. Put your head back down. That would help me. Yep. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks. Thanks. Yes. Thank you. take the lights back down. God, we are a community of people who've realized that we are hopeless without you.
And God, it's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to get distracted. There's all kinds of stuff out there that grabs our attention. But I just ask that you would give us courage to follow after you. The only thing that gives us a real sense of hope in this world the only thing that deeply matters. So God, as people assess where they stand with you, as some reassess the course that they've set, I ask that you would be at the center of that conversation. These are the kind of conversations you deeply care about. It's why you were having them with the Pharisees. Because who we are matters. And who we are we are a people of hope that get that from an outside source that's not us. And we love you for it. Thank you. God, for the people who looked up today, I ask that you would give them the courage to find somebody who loves them and just say, hey, I looked up today and this is why. This is what's going on with me. For some, it's a start of a new journey. For others, it's a readjustment of the course that they were on. But God, give them the courage to reveal that to somebody who loves them. We love you. You are our hope. And we are so grateful. Continue to move in the hearts and minds of those who are here today. In Jesus' name.